Well, we're at the end of January, and I wonder, thinking back, how many of you made New Year's resolutions about a month ago? I wonder who got on the scales, maybe, at the end of December, after all the mince pies, all the chocolate, all the turkey, or whatever it was you were eating, and you had a resolution to lose so many pounds. I wonder how many times over this past month did you actually exercise? I wonder, have you already forgotten uh, stepping on the scales, maybe being shocked at what you saw? Now, I don't want you to think that I'm looking out here uh, this evening and accusing you of all being overweight. The reason I mentioned stepping on the scales is because it helps us back into the book of James. When it comes to the book of James, God puts us on the scales as well as we might say under the microscope. We are asked how seriously are we taking the imperatives or the commands for Christians in the New Testament, those laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, but then expanded by James. And in the passage we have before us uh, this evening, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 onwards, he puts us on the scales or under the microscope by asking the question, will your faith save you? Now, for the theologically uh, keen here, uh, you might think, well, technically it's Christ who saves. Faith is the instrument. It's a gift of God. But the question still holds, will your faith save you? Because James asks it. Now, as I uh, look out this evening, uh, I'm getting to know you a little bit better. But as I look out at you as a congregation, and indeed, usually in any congregation, there's a whole mixture of people present. There are those who are Christians, those who have been born again, uh, those who have known the work of regeneration in their lives and who are seeking to work out their salvation day by day, year by year, endeavoring to follow Jesus in all things. Yes, failing at times, never uh, serving perfectly, uh, but always quick to flee back to Jesus when all is not right. And you know the blessing of, of being at worship each week, uh, desirous to hear God's word of grace and peace spoken to you. There are others uh, who are also professing Christians, and you've known joy and enthusiasm in your Christian life. You've delighted in the hearing and reading of God's words. At times, you haven't been able to get enough of the Bible. You've desired to serve God and others, but mostly that's in the past tense now. You see, your love for God has grown a little cold. You don't have the same interest in hearing God's Word now, and and actually, that puts you in a very dangerous position because to keep going down this path will have terrible circumstances. And if that's you, well, then James will have something to say to you this evening. There are then those who, are, who aren't Christians, and these come in two types. At first, those who come to church but don't profess faith. Uh, they don't profess to know Christ, and in some ways, actually, that's strange, though good, that these people uh, gather for worship in church. Maybe it's out of respect for a parent or a spouse or, or some other reason, but at least they're here and have opportunity to hear Christ. But if you ask them straight, are you a Christian? They'd say, no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. But then secondly, there's then another type of person in any congregation, and this is the person who isn't a Christian, but thinks he or she is one. This person maybe grew up in a church family or even came in from outside the church. Maybe they went through communicant classes and stood up here in front of the elders and the congregation uh, saying they were a Christian, 
but they might not be. It's even possible that office bearers in a congregation aren't actually Christians. And just look at Judas Iscariot for a kind of example of this. James has something especially to say to this type of person this evening, the person who thinks they're a Christian but isn't. And this person is either unaware or self-deceived. This passage gives us a way of actually seeing if there is self-deception and if this type of person actually describes you. So, for those four types of people, uh, think of that question. Will your faith save you? That's the question James asks, but he asks it in the context of two other questions. And you can see these three questions if you look down with me at verses 14 to 17 of James chapter 2. We read, firstly, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Is it any good to be the type of person described in this verse? Maybe. It might give a good impression to someone, but they'd have to not know you very well. You might meet someone you've never met before, and they might say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. You might leave, oh, I was talking to so-and-so. He says, we're a Christian, seems like a fine fellow, or what a great girl she is. But if you do know someone who's like this, that's described in that question, uh, whose actions don't correspond with their words, well, we have a word for such a person, pretentious someone who talks a good game, but there's little evidence of credibility in what they say. Like the person who boasts about being good at some, uh, something, and then you see them in action, and they're useless. Maybe they've plenty of excuses to try and uh, hide the reality, but again, it's more pretense, it's fake. And we're not just talking about trivial matters here. This is not the person who boasts about being good at 10 pound bowling and can never hit a strike. No, the stakes are much higher here. James has a short and to the point follow-on question at the end of verse 14. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Can such a faith save you sitting here this evening? You see, this is serious. This is our eternal salvation at stake. And James is not alone in saying this. What he says, we might say, is an elaboration of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Uh, you can turn there if you want. Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, surely, as you sit here this evening, you don't want to hear Jesus utter those words to you on the last day. So back in James chapter 2, verse 14, these questions of uh, faith corresponding uh, not just with our, what we say with our lips, but actually to the outworking of it in our lives. I don't know what version you use. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV here. Different versions have different things with that little short question. Uh, the King James Version is actually a little bit unhelpful here because it just says, can faith save him? When it's actually, can such faith or can that faith save him? And that is the actual question in context. 
It's the faith just described. But notice James doesn't actually consider this to be real faith. Notice what he says in his initial question. He doesn't say if someone has faith but does not have works. Instead, when we look closely, it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says or claims he has faith but does not have works? You see, James in this passage is challenging empty profession. He could say, like many today, talk is cheap. It's easy to say something, but is it credible? Credible uh, profession of faith is something that gets talked about in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, because it is easy to just say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus. The question that Kirk Sessions have to deal with when they uh, uh, admit uh, someone into membership is, well, is this profession of faith credible? Obviously, they can't know all things. They can't know all that's going on in the heart, but they can see uh, what's going on uh, outwardly. And there is a question of credibility. And to give you an example of uh, someone saying something that might not be credible, uh, I worked for about four years in Thompson House, which is uh, run by the Presbyterian Church in Ireland in conjunction with the probation board. Uh, it's for uh, those who have been in prison, now on probation. Uh, it's a hostel there in North Belfast. Uh, and, and during the time I worked there, there was uh, one, of the, uh, one of the residents uh, was uh, a man who had a, a big problem with personal hygiene. And actually, he had uh, abused his body, his mind for many years with alcohol and maybe other substances. And so he was actually very slow of mind uh, and slow of body and uh, slow of movement. And actually, his personal hygiene issue was so bad that when he ended up leaving the hostel, they had to throw out the chair in the, in the lounge that he had sat on because of the residual uh, stench. Uh, and from time to time, the other residents got very annoyed about this uh, man, and it was then reported to the staff, and it was up to the staff to go and tell him he needed to go and have a shower or whatever. And I remember one day, it was my uh, duty to, to get him aside and to say, look, you really need to go and, and take a shower now. And he went up, his room was two flights of stairs up, uh, and he went through the door into the corridor, and the door closed, and about two minutes later, he came back out. And uh, I, said, uh, I thought I said, you need to go and have a shower. And he said, well, I did have a shower. Uh, and if you knew, I said he was slow of movement, it would have taken him about two minutes maybe to walk to the back of the room. And I thought there's no way he's been up to his room in two minutes and back down. As well as that, the stench was still there. And as well as that, he actually had bedhead. Um, I'm sure I don't see any bedhead as I look out uh, this evening. But it's just to illustrate that he might have said, I've had a shower, but there was no way that was credible on all sorts of counts. Talk is cheap. Uh, and in some ways, we, we might laugh at, at that and think, well, that's a ridiculous scenario. It, it, it really happened with me. Uh, but in some ways, this is what James is saying. It's just as ridiculous to say that you think you can list off a few things that you say you believe, but actually then your life shows nothing for it. James' concern in this is to challenge the dividedness of dead faith, a faith that's easy to speak of, a faith that only proceeds from our lips but does not exude overflow from our lives. Well, let's think more about the dividedness then of, of dead faith. And remember the big concern in James we've been thinking about, uh, the sort of title I've given to this series is The Undivided Church, Wholehearted Living for Jesus. And we've thought about that previously, about the, the in a sense, the, the big diagnosis in James is this double-mindedness 
or, or having a divided heart. And in many ways, this is seen in stark relief in this passage. Useless, dead faith is shown by a division between knowledge and action. Christians are not just to be people who mentally assent to certain truths, and that's it. Our conduct ought to correspond with our creeds. Just saying you have faith might not mean you actually have it. Can that faith, and in word only faith, save you? Well, James' emphatic answer is no. And this is what he continues to drive at in this passage. Suppose here in this congregation, there's a, a single mom uh, whose husband maybe has abandoned her, uh, gone off with another woman. Uh, and so this lady's left on her own with a young baby, and she's maybe far from home. Maybe she's originally from England or Scotland or somewhere else, uh, but she's part of this congregation. Uh, you're getting ready for church uh, on a Sunday. Maybe it's a Sunday morning in January. Uh, you're looking through your wardrobe at your many outfits, wondering what you'll wear today. Uh, once you've picked out your outfit, then you'll have to choose one of your coats from your cloakroom, and you arrive at church. You see this lady uh, whose husband has left her. You see her shuffle into church just ahead of you. Uh, it's winter time. She seems to be dressed for summer, which you think is strange. Maybe she's warm-blooded, you think. But then you shake her hand, and it's freezing. And then after the service, when there's tea and coffee and biscuits, as there is this evening, you notice she's straight there. Uh, and then you see that she's helping herself to four or five biscuits rather than just one. And you sort of think, hmm, she's a bit greedy. And then you realize, hold on, maybe she's not got much money. You drive into church from your uh, detached countryside house. Maybe she lives here in the village, a small house. Maybe she lives in a, in a big house out in the country, but now she's been abandoned by her husband, uh, and she's in need. She doesn't have enough money. She's cold. She's hungry. Anyway, you greet her, and you say, help yourself to another biscuit. Oh, it's nice and warm in the church building today. Oh, and look, the weather's set to brighten up this week. Well, I hope you have a good week before moving on to talk to someone else about football or rugby or some TV show. Well, this is the sort of picture that verses 15 and 16 present us with in James 2, the sort of woman that would fit the needy category of what we read earlier, James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is the example that James gives in verse 15. And this is not just anyone in the example. It's a brother or sister. It's someone known to you in the congregation, and the need is an obvious one. Now, many people have needs of one kind or another. No doubt there will be many needs as I look out and see faces this evening, either a pressing need in your own life or even in someone close to you. And at times, we can walk through those doors on a Sunday, maybe wearing our Sunday best, and we try to put a brave face on things, but there is need beneath the surface. But the need here that James speaks of is an obvious one. The example is of a person who knows enough to know there is a need to the point where they sympathize over the needs at hand, but that's all he or she does. Nothing is actually done to meet the need the need is not acted on. Look what it says. If a brother or sister, poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And the conclusion to this way of going, 
James gives us in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this evening, will your faith save you? Not if it hasn't resulted in or produced works. If it's in word only, then it's lifeless, useless, and dead. Now for those, maybe we need to stop there uh, and take a breather and recognize that there may be those here with a very tender conscience. And you might think, oh no, there's so many needs I see around me and it's overwhelming. How could I meet them all? This passage condemns me, you might think. We're living in the age of what people call being woke, where the world is seemingly filled with all manner of injustices, where people would have you believe that eating beef, eating avocados, eating quinoa is harming not only uh, the world, but the poor farmers in far-off places. There might be warrant to pay attention to uh, some of the things that we're led to believe uh, are needs and injustices in the world. But if we tried to pay attention to all the needs or all the perceived needs, we could be overwhelmed. However, the issue here in James is much more practical, much more straightforward. It is not thinking we have to meet every need, but when it's within your power to meet a need and choosing not to, being happy not to, that is more what James is getting at. The big question James is asking you this evening is, can your faith save you? And to help you answer that, he asks you another question. Do you have an attitude that is happy not to act? Do you have an attitude that is happy not to act, to meet the real need of someone in your congregation when it is before your eyes? Are you happy not to act to meet a need? And yet, do you still consider yourself a Christian because you say you believe certain truths about God, about Jesus? Well, James says to you now, be warned. You see, we always do what we believe. What we believe and what we do are tightly tied together. Not what we say we believe, but what we really believe. That is what we do. And our claim to faith is not always the faith that we demonstrate. Sometimes we demonstrate a division between our trust in God and our actions towards others. And in lots of places, uh, that is uh, condemned, that is spoken against in Scripture, not least here. So then as we move into the second part of this passage from verse 18 onwards, we have someone sort of getting maybe what James is saying, uh, but he sort of has the sort of uh, supposed response of someone. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. The sort of person who might say, well, look, there's different sorts of people in any congregation. You know, there's those who, who love to talk theology, who love to talk about Bible verses, talk about the sermon, but then there's others who are just much more practical people. You know, they're the people, that if, the, if the door's going a bit wonky, they're the people over there with a the screwdriver and they'll be fixing the hinges or whatever else. And sure, there's just different sorts of people in a church. And of course, there are uh, one body, many parts we might think of. But James is having none of this idea that you can just say you have faith. You can just be about intellectual uh, knowledge of Christ and not need to anything. Uh, and in challenging this, he actually invokes the demons. Look at what he says here uh, in response to this supposed uh, view of someone. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, and then he goes on, verse 19, you believe that God is one. 
You might think of what we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He says you do well. And here's the, here's, the, here's the punch. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. We see that's the case in, in the Gospels, Mark 1, 24, uh, where the, the demon-possessed man says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons believe certain truths about God, but it is no good for their salvation. They won't be saved. And actually we see their response to that is shuddering. They shudder at this truth. And the mention of Deuteronomy again there, you even see there's no disconnect in the Old Testament. There's the truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And that truth then leads to response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, uh, and strength. Uh, and so James challenges this idea uh, that it, you can divide faith and works or faith and action. Uh, and then he goes on uh, to give two examples from the Old Testament. And the first example he gives, in some ways, no, no, not a surprise. It's the example of Abraham, one of the, uh, the, or the, the father of the faith in the Old Testament. And the interesting thing here is uh, Abraham is used by James, but also Abraham is used by the Apostle Paul. And it's this passage in particular uh, that many have struggled with throughout the years, how uh, they can possibly be reconciled. For instance, the very last verse here, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And if you were to turn to Galatians 2.16, it talks about justification is by faith alone. There seems to be an open contradiction here. Uh, I'm sure you've got good memories, but it's probably not that good. The very first introductory sermon I gave on James was way back in September and talked about this issue then, uh, thinking of the different contexts. Paul was writing to the Galatians who had this problem with the Judaizers, those who were saying they needed to add all of the Mosaic traditions as well as faith. Uh, and Paul was against that, in a sense, that legalism uh, side of things. But legalism's ugly twin, ugly non-identical twin, we might say, is antinomianism, which is anti-law. Those who say, oh, sure, I've got a, a license to do whatever I want, a license for immorality because I'm trusting Jesus James is, is getting against that idea, saying that if that's how you think, well, you actually don't have Jesus. You don't truly understand Jesus, the one who is the saviour uh, from their sins, his people's saviour from their sins. Not saved so that they can go on sinning, but actually saved to put sin away uh, so that they can glorify God and enjoy him forever. So uh, there's more we could say there, uh, but as I say, James's concern is this division uh, of, of faith and knowledge uh, and action. And so he uses Abraham. Uh, and in the order of the way in which he does things here is interesting because uh, what he refers to is Abraham being justified by works. Uh, and the example given is when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Uh, you can read of that account in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, and then he goes on to explain how faith was active in this. And in fact, how faith was completed uh, in this, verse 22. And then it goes on to say that this action in Genesis 22, uh, we're told, fulfilled what was said, uh, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know Genesis well, you'll know that that passage, that verse, is a quotation from Genesis 15. So, I know that's maybe a bit uh, confusing, complicated there, but basically what James is doing, he's reversing the order here. 
He doesn't go chronologically. He doesn't go first with 15, then 22. He starts with 22, again, because he's concerned about the response to God's grace and favor. Uh, and in Genesis 22, this is Abraham's faith being put to the test. Uh, this promise of a son, uh, that through this son, Abraham would become the father of nations and many nations. And uh, Abraham, before he had even had a son, in chapter 15, remember God took him out. He told him to look up at the night sky and see all the stars and made this promise when he was so old, when Sarah was old as well as barren. Uh, and it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this faith in God's promises came before any action. And basically Abraham's faith, we could say, was Abraham taking God at his word, trusting God as unlikely as it seemed that this would come to be. And when it did come to be, and then God asking a seemingly contradictory thing, Abraham continued and was prepared and had the knife held high, ready to strike down Isaac until uh, God intervened as he knew Abraham's faith wasn't just a case of thought was cheap, but he was willing to trust God in everything. And so there's this example uh, from Abraham in the Old Testament, taking God at his word, but the following example then is maybe a, a bit more strange. We might understand Abraham's faith, but then you sort of might wonder, why does then the example come uh, of Rahab? You might think, surely he could have gone for Noah or Moses or David or someone else, Boaz even, Ruth. Why does he choose Rahab? Well, verse 25, we see, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab was uh, a resident of the great city of Jericho, and yet she trusted in the God of Israel, and she was prepared to put that faith into practice. And how that's seen, how that's outworked, is actually through her care for God's people. She received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She showed hospitality to God's people. And when you think about it like that, in some ways it, it corresponds to that example that James gave uh, at the beginning of the passage, verse 15 of the, the brother or sister coming in poorly clothed and lacking. And really this is how faith can be seen in the midst of God's people, actually caring for one another. And Rahab is an example of that, caring for God's people. Faith is something which is seen. And in this second half of the passage, we can see that throughout. If you, if you cast your eye down there, verse 18 talks about show me your faith. And then he says, I will show you my faith. Verse 20, do you want to be shown? Uh, verse 22 then, he says, you see that faith was active. And that's not just the way you might explain something to someone. You might say, oh, well, you see, this is the way it is. He's actually literally saying, you see that faith was active. The same as in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What we can take from this passage is that you can actually see faith. It's not just something you say, you can actually see it with your eyes. And so you will see that, hopefully, as you come into church on a Sunday. And if someone like that lady example I described you would actually see not just someone saying, have a biscuit. Uh, you would actually see someone saying, hold on a minute. 
I've got an extra coat. I'm about her size. I'm going to bring a coat so she can have my coat. I'm going I'm to cook a bit extra this week and take around a couple of meals uh, to her house. That's the way you will see faith in action, where you actually see people not just saying they believe something, that they love God and love their neighbor, but you actually see it worked out in the context of God's people. Seeing a need and having the means to meet it and doing that, not just talking about it. We can do that individually. I want to close maybe by thinking about how we do that as a church, uh, how you do that as a congregation. Um, the last verse of this passage uh, talks about as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. That might be an individual example, but to make it a, a church example, um, let me paint this picture for you. I'm uh, currently the vacancy convener uh, for Crumlin in our presbytery. Uh, Crumlin's uh, a big, relatively big town uh, in Northern Irish terms. There's 5,000 plus people in it. And uh, it's an interesting town because a few times I have meetings there during the week. And uh, when you arrive into the town, it's bustling. There's a couple of garages, there's shops, there's pubs, there's bakeries, there's butchers. Uh, and all the shops are open. There's no shutters down which in some ways is a wee bit surprising because, as I'm sure you know, there's so many towns across Northern Ireland, even indeed across the UK, they were talking about the death of the high street, and uh, you see it in Belfast, certain areas. I came from Bangor before I came to Dunamuggy, and there, uh, there's not much going on really in Bangor, even if it is a city, and uh, the shutters are down, and it looks lifeless. Places are becoming like ghost towns, dead, and yet, I don't know if you've noticed this as well. Maybe to make things look a little bit better, you see sometimes what's happened is they thought, well, instead of just those black shutters or those blue shutters, why don't we paint a nice picture over the front of it? Uh, or or the boarded up uh, windows, uh, you see, you know, they've painted a, as if it's a bakery inside. Or another one that might be the shutters are painted to look like a butcher's shop. I've seen this. There's a certain place in East Belfast. They have this all laid out and it's run down, and it's lifeless, but it has this look as if there's something going on, as if there's life inside. Well, that's what James is describing here with those who say they have faith, but it's not shown in any way that it is like an empty shop front, lifeless and dead, and really it's fooling no one, and it's certainly not fooling God when it comes to our eternal salvation. So, as we close, will your faith save you? Maybe you're tempted this evening to think as an individual or as a congregation that it is okay to divide knowledge or, 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 a, or a spoken uh, faith and it's seen in action. Well, this passage then is a warning to not be tempted that way. Or maybe as you've been listening, you've recognized that actually you've succumbed to that temptation and that really you do just do your own thing in your life. And that's seen in how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you delight in. And it does not match up in any way uh, with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you say you believe on a Sunday, what you sing you believe, it doesn't match up in any way. Well, there is good news this evening. The fact that this passage has come before you and told you that that is not right. It then calls you back to God, to repent of that way of thinking, and to know the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who uh, came and lived among us, the one who lived and died and rose again. Uh, and so come back to Jesus tonight 
Don't have an empty, useless, dead faith, but have a faith uh, that leads to action. And I'll close again uh, with uh, a quotation uh, from the Westminster Confession, where it says, The faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the sole means of justification, yet it is never alone in the person justified, but is always accompanied by all other saving graces. It is not a dead faith, but works by love. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we do not want to be like painted shop fronts with nothing going on inside. Father, we pray that this word to your people this evening would bring conviction of sin, that would, it would warn us away from dividing uh, ourselves, dividing our understanding of faith uh, and of works, thinking that it is possible to live a, a compartmentalized life where we can go out through the week, do what we want, loving not you and not loving our neighbors. Father, warn us from this. Convict us where we have gone wrong in this and draw us back to you, to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as that happens, that this congregation would grow, uh, not in just in faith, but then in its outworking in love uh, and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit being seen in the many relationships that take place, you know, uh, talking to someone in the pew beside, to the before and after, to all that goes on through the week here, that this would be a congregation that seeks to care for one another. Father, we pray that when those come in who are in need, uh, that these needs would be seen by those who have eyes to see and that these needs would be met. Yes, we recognize the priority of our spiritual need, our spiritual health, but may we not be those who ignore physical needs when we have the means to meet them. Father, we pray that if this happens, that uh, corner congregation in the middle of this village would be a, a beacon, would be a light, uh, that people would see uh, our good deeds and praise uh, you, our Father in heaven. Father, we desire the spread of the good news of Jesus. And we pray against the hypocrisy uh, that would cause people to turn away saying they do not believe because of our failures and failings as Christians. Father, we pray you'd strengthen Connor in this, uh, that we would be those who truly love you and truly love our neighbor as ourselves because you are the God who has first loved us. You have given us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.